you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 13? Judges chapter 13. You know, this week, I don't know how you felt in all of the different places that you've been. I wonder if you felt like you were in the way, or if you were an afterthought, or if it was totally insignificant altogether. But what I want you to know this morning is that you're an answer to our prayers. And I mean that. I don't say that with sentimentality. I say that with zeal. We've been praying that the Lord would bring every single week exactly the people that are supposed to be here to hear his word. And here you are. You, you specifically are wanted here and desired. And we are thankful that every single one of you are here. We see it as an answer of the Lord's kindness to us. So we're going to be, last week we did so well covering two chapters. Today we're going to cover four. Um, yeah, right? The exit signs are around the, the building. Um, but we're going to do that in pieces. And so today we're going to start with chapter 13, beginning uh, with the first five verses. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save from the hand of the Philistines." Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, I wonder how many of us today are wrestling with the reality of your will and plan. I wonder how many of us feel confused and we want it to be more obvious. We want it to be less painful. We want it to be more clear. I wonder if there are any here this morning who feel like they have totally ruined your plan, totally ruined your will. Lord, wherever they are, whether they're perplexed or whether the perplexity is yet to come, whether they feel like they have ruined or the feelings of despair have not yet set in, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would meet them there with the hope of your word, with the truth of the gospel, and that we would see the kindness, the grace, the power of our Lord, and that it would lift our spirits as high as they will go. O oh God, convict sin, save the lost. And edify the saints. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So most of y'all know this already, but I'm from the middle of nowhere. Um, like a lot of y'all, you know, I, uh, I kind of feel embarrassed sometimes. You know, we live in Golden Springs now. And so Gracie asked me the other day, I guess she'd been with her grandparents' house. And she said, am I country or am I city? And I said, baby, I hate, I, I can't even believe that I did this to you. But you're a city girl, you know? But I'm totally out of place there. And, and part of that is, you know that if you grew up in the country, driving into the city is a big deal. I can remember like being in the 10th grade. I, I remember the grade. I want you to think about that. And I said something about I have to go to town. You know, and I had this guy that had just moved from D'Armanville. Like D'Armanville was some great metropolis who said, well, I consider myself to live in town. What do you mean go to town? I thought, well, big boy, I don't live in town. I live way, way outside of town, right? But driving into the city was a big deal, especially, especially Atlanta. Y'all know what I'm talking about? My dad, when we were growing up, talked about driving through Atlanta as though you were having to play Mario Kart and avoid unidentified flying objects. It, it was like a land of aliens that would come and consume the car and send you careening off into the cosmos, you know. I mean, d driving to Atlanta was just a really big deal to him, you know. And so I remember the first time that I was going to drive to Atlanta. I was in college 
And I was working for this outfitter company at the time. There was going to be this trade show in Greenville, South Carolina, and I really wanted to be a part of the trade show and see all the stuff. I was really into backpacking and, and outdoor gear and all that stuff, and I was going to have, like, this front row seat and get all these free giveaways, you know, and stuff. And so I remember going and telling my parents, I'm driving. I'm driving. And, you know, of course, you get the whole spill about the UFOs in Atlanta and the whole thing. But I'm like, I'm a grown man, and I'm making this decision for myself. Me and the Honda, we're going through Atlanta, you know. And, uh, and so we're going through, and, and now I'm about to blow some of y'all's minds, okay? Back then, we, were af- we, we, we weren't driving with atlases, but we didn't have GPSs, okay? We had these, this website called MapQuest. I don't even know if MapQuest is still a thing. We had MapQuest.com, and you could go in, and it was, the, it was revolutionary to travel, you know what I'm saying? Like when you first discovered it. And, uh, and so you could type in your address and you could type in the address of your destination and it would give you printed out turn-by-turn directions to go exactly where you are. So I, I did all that. So I, I put in the, the directions, uh, you know, from here to, to Greenville and from Greenville back and so that I had it all. So I'm driving and I get there no problem whatsoever. I drive through Atlanta. I've got my my chest bowed out. I'm like, yeah, you know, who's your dad? You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> feeling like a boss because I just conquered this unconquerable land. And uh, but then then coming back, coming back was a different story. You see, I didn't know I had not driven a lot on the interstate at this point in my life, and I didn't know that sometimes two roads become one road. Right? And that it can be a little bit cloudy sometimes on what name of the road that you're looking at. And so I'm on one road and it's got one name on the sign, but on my MapQuest printout, it's got a different name on on the turn directions. And I'm driving back and it's like 10, 11 o'clock at night coming through Atlanta. I've never done this before and I'm coming back and I get totally lost. Okay, totally lost in downtown Atlanta. And so the only thing that I can think to do is to take an exit and just try to get my bearings. And I end up in this part of Atlanta. I, have no, I couldn't take you there right now if my life depended on it. I have no idea where it was, no idea what was going on, right? And, of course, you know, I had the Nokia phone that you could change the faceplates on, you know, the one you played Snake. Y'all remember playing Snake, doing all that? That was my, my cell phone. And so you're just praying that God will give you a signal on that thing, you know, you're just praying, and, uh, but you're in downtown Atlanta, so I do, and I remember I called Megan, we were uh, dating at the time, and I called Megan, uh, I don't know if we were engaged by this point or not, but we, I called her, and I'm like, I'm lost, I'm, and, and you cannot tell my parents, but I am lost in downtown Atlanta, you know, and, and so, of course, you know what she had to do, she had to get on MapQuest, and I, I was searching, and I found the address of this building on the side on the side of this building, and I give her this address, and she said, you are way off, you are way off, and, uh, and so she put in the directions fr- from the building that I was sit, uh, parked in front of all the way home, and so then I did have a GPS, because I'm talking to her on the Nokia, and she's telling me turn by turn, every single turn that I need to make so that I can get home. And I remember when I got on I-20, it was like the heavens parted and the Lord said, well done, my good and faithful servant, you know. But I think, I think a lot of the times our experience with God's will and God's plan is a lot like that. I knew the destination and I thought I knew exactly what it was going to be like to get to that destination. I thought I knew exactly the turns that I needed to make and exactly the steps that were going to be. And I thought I was crazy enough to believe that country boy from Rabbit Town was going to be able to go right through UFO land with no problems at all, right? And I think a lot of the time when it comes to God's plan for our lives and God's will, what we know is the destination and we know where he wants us to end up and we have some idea of where we're supposed to be. And in our minds, it's just simple turn-by-turn directions. It's simply going, putting one foot in front of another one, and it's all going to be smooth. Except we're us, right? We're us. And we take wrong turns and we sin. And we struggle, and we, we struggle with unbelief. And then we, we experience things that have nothing to do with us, but that the Lord in his providence intends for us to experience. And what we find out is that we feel like we know where we're supposed to be, but we're lost somewhere in between, totally unsure how it's going to end up in the, at, the, at the end. 
And, and I think what we can have a tendency to do as we grow older and grow more mature in our faith is we can get to this place where we kind of give up on ever getting to where we believe God has called us to be. We get to this place where sometimes it feels like we've taken so many wrong turns and done so many wrong things and experienced so many unexpected bumps along the path that we end up believing and becoming convinced that we have to give up on God's plan altogether because this was not at all how we viewed God's plan. Well, now I would like to introduce you to a man named Samson. Because that is Samson's, this is one of the most famous portraits of Samson as he hangs there between the pillars. But this is Samson's story. Samson starts out and it seems so obvious and so apparent who Samson is going to be. It seems obvious that we know, it's, in fact it's going to tell us right there in verse 5 of chapter 13 what God's plan for Samson is and how Samson fits into God's broader plan. And it would seem as though if all you had were the first five verses of chapter 13 that you could go ahead and write the rest of the story because it seems like you know where it's headed, you know what's going to happen, and you know all that's going to transpire. Except you don't. Except you don't. Except that the pattern of God's plan in, in, for Samson's life reflects the pattern for our life. Th that very often Samson takes wrong turns and he sins and he lives for himself and he does all the wrong things in all the wrong ways. And it appears from the outside looking in that God's plan for him is over. Except you may be you, but God is God. But God is God. And so what we're able to discern is a pattern for God's plan and how God and the shape that God's plan typically takes for each of us by looking at the life of Sam, Samson. So the first thing I want you to see about this plan is I want you to see that God's plan is usually shocking. That God's plan is usually shocking or God's plan is usually confusing. Now you might say, but God is not the author of confusion. And of course, God is not the author of confusion except from our perspective. Sometimes the things that God does looks pretty odd, doesn't it? Sometimes the experiences that we have and the, and the, the walk down providences that we, that we know become perplexing to us who have trouble to wrap our minds around the enormity and, and the infinite plan of the living God. Look at what it says in verse 1. We're told something right out of the gate that if you're not paying close attention, it would be easy for you to miss. He says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistine for 40 years. All right, does anything stand out to you? Remember what we said in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there's this pattern that's on repeat, right? That, that the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Then the Lord allows them to be plundered. We've got that so far, don't we? They've done evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the Philistines have come against them. The Lord is allowing the Philistines, according to his judgment, to plunder his people because of the evil they have done in his, side of, in his sight. But what we see through this pattern is the next step is that what's supposed to happen is that the people of God cry out. All the other stories throughout the book of Judges, after they, it talks about the judgment of whatever people has come against them, it says that the people grumbled and cried out to the Lord, and then that the Lord saved them. But what we don't have is we're, we're, we have this big blank over here that's not been filled in. The people never cry out. The people never grumble. The people never even show themselves to be upset at all. And here's the picture. Here's the picture. They're being plundered by the Philistines under the judgment of God, and they don't even mind it. They don't even mind it. That they're being conquered by the Philistine people and occupied by the Philistine people and being compelled to do things according to Philistine custom, which is against the Lord. They are not able to thrive as the people of God, as God has called them to be, but they're under the judgment of God. And they're under the judgment of God. It doesn't even bother them. It doesn't even bother them. That the book of, of Judges is about the Canaanization of Israel. That they were supposed to come into the land of Canaan. And coming into the land of Canaan, they were supposed to make the land of Canaan like Israel. They were supposed to make it like God's glory, like God's holiness. They were supposed to take it and make it a land that is set apart from all the other lands. As they are a people that are set apart from all other peoples. 
But the opposite has happened. They look nothing like Israel. Instead, they look like the Canaanites themselves. They're living under the judgment of God, and the judgment of God doesn't even bother them. Can you think of a more damning statement that could be said about the people of God? Can you think of something that would be more condemning than God coming against you because of your sin and it not even bothering you? But what I think we see here is a glimpse of what's happening among the people of God today, brothers and sisters. That in the canonization of Israel, what we catch is a glimpse of the secularization of the church. That we had Israel, and they have adopted Philistine customs, and they have adopted Philistine way of life, and Philistine ways of thinking, and Philistine ways of worship. They've adopted these into their, into their, uh, into their culture so much so that these things feel normal to them, that these things feel right to them. That these things feel okay to them. That these are the things that they even want and desire so much so that they're under this judgment and not even calling out for help. Could it be that what we see is when we're adopting the modern ideologies, modern concepts of gender, modern concepts of sexuality, modern concepts of success and how you measure that success, modern concepts of parenting, Modern concepts of marriage, modern concepts of dating, modern concepts of entertainment. As we begin to adopt these ideas and they become normal to us and they become even enjoyable to us. Could it be, y'all, that we are living under the judgment of God and living under the judgment of God, it does not even bother us? Oh, y'all, is there a more damning statement than that? Is there a more damning statement than the people of God called out by God to live according to his glory, living as though he isn't even there and they would prefer the world to him anyway? See, that's what we see in Judges. And by the time we reach verse 1 of chapter 13, the canonization of Israel has reached critical mass. Now let me ask you, how would you expect God to respond? The people of Israel broke the cycle. They are the ones who are unrepentant. They don't want God's, to, God to save them. They don't want God to intervene in their lives. They don't want God to mess up a good thing that they have going. They don't want God to interrupt the wealth that they are enjoying. They don't want God to interrupt the worship that they have. They don't want God to, to denormalize the things that have become normal in their lives. They don't want those things. They aren't crying out and begging Him to help. So how would you expect God to respond? Well, I can tell you how I would respond. I would let them have what they want. I would let them have what they want. I would withdraw from them. In fact, this is totally in bounds within the old covenant in which God had said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will pledge to be for you and to deliver you and to protect you and to provide for you so long as you uphold the stipulations of the covenant. And they have abandoned those stipulations altogether and God is in full right, is it within his full rights to totally abandon them too. Which is what makes verses 2 through 5 so shocking. So shocking. Look at verse 5 specifically. For behold, you shall conceive. This is the angel of the Lord talking to a, a barren mother. The only pious person, really, that we read in the whole book of Judges, by the way. A barren mother. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin. I want you to take this word begin, I want you to lock it in your mind. We're going to come back to it at the very end. I want you to lock the word begin in. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. If grace doesn't shock you, you don't understand grace. If grace doesn't shock you, you don't understand grace. The people of God had abandoned him. The people of God didn't want him. The people of God wanted everything they could have in the world. They wanted all the other gods, all the other riches, all the things of the Philistines. They wanted all of that. They didn't even want God to interrupt their life or to intervene in their life. They didn't even want to be a part of the plan of God. They had abandoned it altogether. And yet God, God responds to them by saying, I'm going to raise up a Savior anyway. I'm going to come to you even though you don't even care to come to me. I'm going to come to you even though my coming will feel like an imposition 
to you. I'm going to come and I'm going to make you who I intended you to be and who I designed you to be. I'm going to save you. In other words, not so much from the Philistines. I'm going to save you from yourself because I love you, because I care about you. See, there's a, there's a, a false gospel that's out there that says that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Y'all, the only way that you can say that is to not know the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Old Testament is filled with grace. The God of the New Testament is filled with grace. What we see here in Judges chapter 13 is the whole storyline of the Bible where God comes in pursuit of a people he loves in spite of who they are, in spite of what they do, in spite of what they want. That he comes to them because he loves them and he has set his glory to live and exist within them. It's the storyline of the whole Bible, isn't it? And so you're sitting here and you would think that if you have these first five verses of Judges chapter 13, you would think that at this point you could write the rest of the story. I've heard enough Bible stories in my day. I went to VBS. I, I, I could write this story. Except the author begins to let us know that the situation is more confusing than is at first understood. First of all, he comes to a barren woman, which means at this point in her life, she has not been able to have children long enough that it is an apparent impossibility that she's able to do it. So much so that now she can say it's not, you know, it's not that we've had bad luck. It's not that we've been in a bad situation. It's not that it's, it's just taken a long time. At this point, it's I am barren. I cannot have children. And he brings life to this dead womb. He's, he's going to do that. And we're going to look at this in, in much greater detail actually next week. But not only that, so, so he, he interrupts their life and he, he shocks them. He does this astonishing word that's meant to be, be an interruption, an abrupt, uh, miraculous work in their life. But then look at what happens with his dad, Manoah. Manoah, some, some commentators think Manoah was kind of dense, like maybe not very bright. I don't know that I even really believe that Manoah was dense. I, I think he was just trying to put all this together. I, I think he was honestly trying. And so he really goes to the, before the angel of the Lord, he said this angel has come to his wife, and the wife comes and says, hey, the Lord says I'm going to give birth to a Savior. I know I've been barren. I know we haven't ever, ever been, have, had to have, been able to have children. I know that it appears as though we're under the curse of the Lord because of that. But that's not the case. Turns out I'm going to give birth to a Savior. And you have Manoah, and Manoah is like, well, I have some questions. Well, I have some questions, Right? And I imagine that if your wife came to you with a message from the angel of the Lord that was going to be this life changing, you might stop for a second and say, uh, excuse me, Meg, I think I have some questions, right? And so three different ways you kind of see Manoah asking questions. Verse 80 says, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. He says, what are we supposed to do with the kid? What do you want us to do to him? You're really going to give birth? We don't even know how to be parents. We're old people now. Like, she's barren. This has never happened. Like, what do you want us to do with him? Verse 12, and Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be his manner of life? What is supposed to be his mission? So not just what do you want us to do, but what do you intend for him to do? Can you really kind of expound upon he's going to be a savior? Can you get, expound on this idea that he's supposed to be a Nazarite? Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Can you help me to understand? Verse 17, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. He said, not only do I need to know what this deal is with my boy, I need to know what the deal is with you. Like, who are you? Who are you? And even that, even that is an indictment of Israel. Their God has come to save them and they don't recognize him. They don't know him. He, he's foreign to them. He, he's, he's unrecognizable to them. But in these questions for Manoah, what we see is that this situation is more confusing than it appears at first. That it's a more shocking discovery than what you might believe to be in the beginning. 
that the will of God, the plan of God, as it's unfolding to save his people, as it's unfolding through Samson, is likely to have some turns that aren't expected. The narrator is giving us insight into the three chapters that are to follow to say, this is going to be quite a tale. This is going to be something that is going to blow your doors off a little bit. This is going to be a situation in which you're going to wrestle and wonder if God is actually at work, if God is really there. You're going to sit there like Manoah and ask yourself, who is this God that would be actually working in this way? And I wonder if you think about the plan of God for your life, if that's how you feel. I wonder if you're sitting there and maybe you have some idea of what you believe the destination of God's will for your life is, but you are totally perplexed as to any way that it could ever happen. I've often heard growing up that the safest place for a person to be is in the will of God. And can I just tell you that's hogwash? That's hogwash. That my experience is, is that the plan of God feels much differently than you expect it to feel. You expect it to feel settled, calming. You you expect it to be a, a moment of great resolve and great faith. You expect it to be a moment in which you feel at your strongest. You expect the call of God to come and for you to respond and for you to say like Isaiah, here I am, Lord, send me. But my experience is, is that the call of God on your life, the plan of God as it unfolds for you, whether it's in your relationships or in your career or in your family or in your ministry, whatever it looks like, that you see them and you hear them and typically you're not calmed by them, you're unsettled by them. That the call of God on your life doesn't make you feel safer. Usually it makes you feel vulnerable. It makes you feel as though you don't have complete control over your life. And it leaves you shocked and dazed and confused as to whether or not you've really heard from the Lord. Or if maybe you're just having a weird day. I think about some of the conversations that I had with my brother Alan a couple years ago when he was uh, in the process of adopting Maddox. And I remember it, it was a long process, and it took you a bit to get there. And I just remember him saying something along the line, like, there's no way that God would ask a 48-year-old man to adopt a child. There's just no way he would do that. And, and you could hear him working out and wrestling with these, uh, th- this uh, call of faith that was on his life. And, and, and there were moments in which he knew, even if that's what God would want him to do, he's not sure that he wanted to do this. And there's this internal wrestling that's happening, this internal struggle that's happening. And I would tell you that isn't atypical. That's normal in the plan of God. So right now, if you feel confused about God's call on your life, the confusion may not be uh, a sign from God as people often interpret it that you're outside of God's will. It may be the very work that God is doing in you to prove and to show that it is his will and that he's calling you to be a part of something that is bigger than you. He's calling you to be a part of something that you can't do. He's calling you to be a part of something which you can't understand. And what he's saying is stop walking by sight. Stop walking by what is obvious. Stop walking by what is clear and instead walk for the first time in a long time for the biggest step you've ever taken by faith by faith the plan of God is confusing it's shocking that's not all we see though that God's plan isn't always obvious God's plan isn't always obvious look at uh, verse chapter 14 verses 1 and 2 or let's go ahead and read the first nine verses together there of chapter 14 says, Samson went down to Timnah. So now we're actually getting to meet this guy that we've been told about in chapter 13. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, but he, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in peace Pieces as one tears a young goat. I don't don't know how you tear a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. 
Then he walked down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. So here's what I want us to see. I want you to first think about the very first words that we hear out of Samson's mouth. What are the first words that we hear out of Samson's mouth? Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father, I saw one of the daughters of Philistines. Now get her for me as my wife. Get her for me as my wife. The first words out of the mouth of Samson is, I want to marry that Philistine woman. I want that filly, right? Like that's how I gotta imagine him saying it. Like, like I want her for myself. It says in there that she is right in my eyes. That means uh, it, it's not so much uh, necessarily talking about her beauty, though it, it certainly could encompass that. But in other words, it's what he's saying is this is what I've been looking for. This is exactly what I've been looking for. Finally, I have found what I'm looking for. You go and get her for me because she is what I've been looking for. And it's a parable a parable of what's happening in Israel. The life of Samson really happened. But what we find often in the Old Testament is that God teaches us through parables that are actually lived out by his people. We have Samson supposed to deliver God's people from the Philistines. Why is it that he's supposed to deliver God's people from the Philistines? Because they are chasing after the lifestyle of the Philistines. Because they are pursuing the Philistines. Because they are chasing after everything except the glory of God. And so here is Samson. And what is he doing? He's supposed to be their deliverer. Is chasing after the Philistines. It shows that what what the Philistines have is what he's looking for. It's what he's wanting. It's what he's longing for. It's what he's thirsty for. It's what he's hungry for. Don't just think about the first thing that he says. Think about the first thing that he does. The first thing that he does that we learn about Samson is he's walking down the path and there's this lion that's going to come out. And I guess you do what a lion's going to do. It says the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and Samson is a man of, of supernatural strength and he catches this lion and destroys it into pieces. And he leaves the carcass lying there. Well, over time he comes passing back through and the carcass is filled with a, a hive of bees and they've made honey. Now, remember what we said, that, that uh, he had been set aside as what? A Nazarite. The Nazarite vow was something that was peculiar, and it was an extraordinary commitment to God where you were setting aside your life to live for God. You can read about this in greater detail in Numbers chapter 6, the nature of the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow essentially encompassed three things. You no longer would consume alcohol, you would not cut your hair, and you would not touch anything that was dead or defiled. Okay, and so what is the very first thing that Samson does? Samson creates a carcass, and then Samson eats from the carcass. And not only does Samson eat from the carcass, Samson then goes and feeds his parents, his family, from the carcass. He immediately violates the vow that, has, that he has made before birth to be set aside for the Lord. He immediately, as a matter of fact, there's going to be a wedding feast just after that, and almost every commentator says it, it is implicit that he drank alcohol at that banquet. So he's this double violation of, the, of his vow that he has made offered to the Lord right here, right out of the gate, the very first thing. He passes the physical test. He's impressive. He just rips a lion like he rips a goat, apparently. But the internal test. The offering of his heart, the commitment of his spirit, what he does when nobody else is there. He fails miserably. He shows himself not to be ready. In other words, what we learn about Samson is that Samson is a Philistine himself. Certainly he was not ethnically a Philistine. Probably he was circumcised and the Philistines would not have been circumcised. But in all the things that he does, in all the ways that he lives, in all the things that he loves, in all the ways that he applies himself to life, he is, by definition, a Philistine. He lives by his impulses. He lives according to his appetites. 
He lives by what comes into his eyes and what he sees and what he hungers for and what he longs for. He doesn't see a problem with the Philistine because he is one. And I wonder if there's a a place there for us to ask some questions of ourselves. Do we look like Americans or do we look like Christians? Do we think like postmoderns or do we think like Christians? See, it's possible to gather every Sunday in a place just like this and to say that you are the people of God, but then when you go and you want what everybody else wants and live like everybody else lives and do what everybody else does and think like everybody else thinks, maybe, maybe, maybe you're not a part of the people of God. You're outside of the people of God. And this is God's invitation to you saying, come, come and offer me all of who you are, all of your mind, all of your heart, all of your strength, everything that you are. The idea is not to pass some physical test and to walk through through a baptistry or to make it into a church on Sunday, as good as those things are. The test is, have you given your heart to the Lord? Have you given your heart to the Lord? The emphasis throughout Judges uh, 14 and 15 is really on the freedom of Samson. That, that Samson does exactly what Samson wants to do. He, he's really portrayed as a narcissistic man and a man that is as concerned with himself and only with himself and with what he wants and with what he can do. And so you're, you're seeing over and over, he's, he's kind of like Violet from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Remember what she says? I want what I want, and I want it now. And this is Samson's philosophy of life. I want what I want, and I want it now. It's not all that different from the credit card people that we are, is it? It's not all that different from the age of materialism that we live in. It's not all that different from, from the commercialization that we've grown accustomed. We see what we want and we want it and we go and we get it regardless of what happens, regardless of the havoc it may bring into our lives. And this is what we see in the life of Samson. I want what I want and I want it now. And so Samson's freedom is being highlighted for us. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a story just after this in which he's going to try to deceive a group of Philistine men at his own wedding feast, nonetheless, to go out and he, he presents this riddle. He says, if you can solve this riddle, I'll give you 30 new garments. And if, I, if, I, if you solve this riddle, I'll give you 30 new garments. And they deceive him in his deception and pin him down, and they solve the riddle. Well, he, a man of deception, feels offended by this. Isn't that what we do? He feels offended by this, and he goes, and he gets the jawbone of a donkey doing, again, what? Touching something dead, which he's not supposed to do. And he creates a thousand more corpses by killing a thousand men with that jawbone. He is a Philistine. He is a Westerner. He is an American. He is a man that lives according to his desires and his impulses. But there's a verse that is intended to function like a legend to a map, like a key to a lock. Because on the outside looking in, it doesn't seem that God is at work at all. On the outside looking in, it feels like that the people of God are going to be hopelessly lost because they are subjected to a man that lives only according to his lusts, only according to his impulses, only according to his desires. It appears as though they are subjected to this one man's narcissistic freedom. Except we have verse 4. Look at what it says. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity. He, meaning the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. He says, the narrator interjects, and he says, I know it's not obvious. I know it's not clear. I know it seems like everything is going to hell in a handbasket here, but that is not the case. God is there. God is raising up Samson, not in the way that you expect him to raise up Samson, not to do what you expect Samson to do, but God is raising Samson up, and he is going to ram Samson into the spokes of the, of the Philistine chariot wheels, just like a, a stick being rammed into the spokes of a bicycle. That he's going to use him, not as a great military leader the way he did with of Gideon, but he's going to use him as a provoker of the Philistines to draw them out. And by drawing them out into the midst of this provocation, he's going to strike them down. That he works in the subtle way. And, and what we see here is we see the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man coalescing. 
We, we see them coalescing in a way that is rigidly biblical, the way it always does. What did Samson do? Samson did exactly what he wants to do. That's the emphasis here. Samson is free. Samson makes all these decisions according to all these different things and does all that he wants to do. And what did God do? God did exactly what he planned to do before the foundations of the earth. Do you see that? Do you see how those two things come together? Samson is acting freely. Samson is living according to his impulses. Samson is living according to his narcissism. Samson is, is, is doing whatever looks good in his eyes and whatever is pleasing to him. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God's plan is completely unfailing. In the midst of that, God's plan isn't being compromised. In the midst of that, God's plan is unveiling. It's unrolling. See, what was obvious What was obvious was the decisions that Samson was making. In your life, what's what's obvious to you are the circumstances that you're incurring. What's obvious to you is maybe the missteps that you've taken. What's obvious to you may be the wrong turns that you've taken. That's what's obvious. But what's obvious to us, brothers and sisters, is not what is ultimate. What is ultimate is the plan of the Lord. And God, in His ultimate plan, encompasses our decisions in such a way that it unveils and unrolls so that for His people it is to their good. And it is always to His glory. So that's good news. That's hope on at least two fronts. First of all, You can't ruin the plan of God. You can't ruin it. Some of you, you feel like you did something when you were 15 years old that you've never recovered from. I guarantee you, there are some of you, I I can think of things that I did when I was a teenager, and they still haunt me. Some of you think that you messed up so bad as a teenager, as a young adult, or as a young mom, or a young husband, that you are, are incapable of being able to come back from it. You feel like you ruined God's plan for your life forever. Can I just tell you? Your decisions may be obvious. Your sin may be obvious, but it's not ultimate. You have not messed up God's plan. God's plan accounts for your decision. God's plan encompasses your decisions. In fact, your decisions, this is the second degree of hope, don't destroy you. Don't destroy you. Not only do your decisions not ruin God's plan, But God takes what's ruined in your life and he redeems it into something wonderful and beautiful and powerful and useful. It reminds me of a picture I saw this week. So this is in Sri Lanka. Uh, The the beaches of Sri Lanka are gorgeous. It's it's a big island community in uh, South Asia. But they're having trouble with just garbage on the beaches. The people were not taking maybe enough pride in it or whatever and they were just covered in garbage. So you have these beautiful, sparkling beaches covered in trash. And I feel like a lot of us, we get to a place in our life and that's pretty reflective of how we feel it's going. Like, yeah, I'm an image bearer of God. Yeah, I've done all these things that the Lord has all these things for me. Yes, I've been, uh, Jesus came that I might be redeemed. But if I look at my life, all that's obvious to me is trash. All that's obvious to me is garbage. All that's obvious to me is problems. So here's what an artist there did. He took all of the garbage from the beach and he took it and he made a piece of artwork out of it. See, the garbage there is particularly dangerous to the elephants. It was causing great harm to the elephants. And so there he took and he took all of that garbage and he fashioned it in to the shape of a towering elephant right there on the beach as a reminder, as a reminder to everyone else that they should pick up their trash and they should not harm the elephants and not damage the, the beautiful beaches that are there. In other words, he took that which was awful. He took that, took that which was ruins. He took that which was despicable, the refuse of the world, and he constructed it into a work of art that is now useful for something good. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is your, your life in the hands of a sovereign God. That is your hands and your life in the hands of a sovereign God. I am not saying that you can do whatever you want to do. You're going to see that in just a second without any repercussions. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that there is not a misstep big enough that out, 
outsteps the grace of God. I'm saying that there is not a, a, a mess up bad enough that will mess up the plan of God. What I am saying is that God can take all of the history of, of blow-ups and mess-ups in your life, the ruins that are who you feel like you are today, and bring them together as a masterpiece in His kingdom so that now you are useful in His hands. God's plan isn't always obvious. But God's plan, God's plan is ultimate. Brings me to the final point I want you to see this morning. And that is that God's plan is completely unstoppable. God's plan is completely unstoppable. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. She made him, this is, so he, by this point he's been married a couple of times. He's had a few different Philistine women in his life. And he's married to a, a woman named Delilah. And uh, her people, she's a Philistine woman. And the Philistines have come and they have offered her silver. I want you to hold that into your mind until next week. He offered her silver to betray Samson. And they go through this long rigmarole and he kind of, he kind of, you know, makes her chase her own tail and doesn't tell her, but finally she wears him down. Look, look at what it says in verse 19. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Remember, that's the Nazarite vow. The only part of the Nazarite vow that Samson had not broken was the shaving of his head. It was the last symbol that he was a man that was offered to God. It was the last symbol that he was a man that was going to be used by God. And so he tells her about his hair and she shaves off the locks of his head as they're trying to figure out what it is that makes him so strong. And then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. I want you to see that God's plan is unstoppable in two different dimensions. First, you see that in Samson's downfall. Samson had lived his life for himself. Samson had broken his vow at every opportunity at the first chance that he could. Samson was to be a man that was set apart for the Lord. And yet Samson was a man that was set apart for himself and himself only. And God had told his people, well, you can remember back to Joshua chapter 24, when they're saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and, and Joshua says, if you do not, harm will come to you. Harm will come to you. There will be a, a reaping of what you have sown in your life. And when we get to, to Judges chapter 16, we see a reaping of what Samson has sown. But I want you to think about this. Samson is in every way the opposite of who Gideon was. Gideon was weak. He was cowardly. He was insecure. Samson is charismatic and self-assured and strong. He's the strongest man that we read about in all of the Bible. Physically, he was imposing. He was apparently attractive. He was in every way a person that had the world by the coattails. And so Samson was deceived into believing that by his charisma and by his strength and by the force of his personality and because he had always been successful and always been effective at whatever he had done, that he was an inconquerable man. And so Samson became convinced that he could strong arm the Lord into allowing him to do what he wants to do and to be who he wanted to be. But what Samson is proof is that it does not matter who you are. It does not matter how long you've gotten away with whatever. It does not matter what your background is. It does not matter how successful you've been. It does not matter how charismatic you are. It does not matter uh, how strong you are or how attractive you are. None of those things are significant. You cannot strong arm the Lord. It's impossible to read the story of Samson, you see, and to not take sin seriously. For Samson ended up being in a place in his life in which his eyes were ripped out of his skull and he was grinding stone, being mocked in a prison. And I wonder this morning if there are some of you and you're trying to strong arm the Lord and to convince the Lord that you can do what you can't do and that you're, you're redefining ethics in your life and you're redefining your thinking in your life and you are the picture of the secularization of the church as you would look more like an American than you would like a Christian. 
tonight, this morning, is a warning for you. It is a warning for you to turn yourself away, to repent and to call upon the name of the Lord. It is a warning that you would turn away from your wickedness and turn away from this world and not find your delight in what your eyes can see. But that you would find delight in what your heart can know and who your heart can know. There's a second way that we see the unstoppable plan of God. Look at what it says, verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. They say this is the type of sentence that is a pregnant sentence. It is the work of a literary masterpiece. You remember what I told you to hold in your mind all the way back from the beginning of the story in chapter 13? What did it say? It said that he told that the angel of the Lord told the woman that by the conception of her womb that God was going to do what? He was going to begin to save. To begin to save. And here in verse 22, this is a but God moment where God intervenes into the midst of Samson's misery. And he says, what I have started, I will bring to completion. I began to save in 13, but I am beginning to grow your hair once more. And you will be set apart as my servant. And I will accomplish through you what I intended to accomplish through you. That your wrong turns and your missteps will not not stop my unstoppable will. So they bring Samson up and they bring him into the midst of the temple and all of the leaders of the Philistines are there and you know what they did? They spread his arms between two pillars. Think of it. His arms are spread and tied to the pillars and the spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson a final time and he begins to, he pulls with all of his might and he brings down the entirety of the, of the uh, facility that they're in and it crashes down on the entire institution of the Philistines wiping from them every leader that they have and what has happened by the man who lived as a Philistine God has saved and delivered his people from the Philistines by the arms that are spread wide, the one who was betrayed by silver, he has brought all of this down upon his own head that his people might be saved. And do you know how Hebrews 11 remembers Samson? A man of faith. A man who probably pr prayed two times in his whole life, and best we can tell. A man of faith. A man used by God according to his plan. Can I tell you something? You're not a lost cause. You're not a lost cause. You see, what God begins, God completes. But even this is just a beginning. Samson's salvation of Israel was the beginning of another salvation that was to come. You see, there was another one who would spread his arms wide. There was another one that would be betrayed by silver. There's another one who would bring the judgment of God down upon his own head. And it is a strong man who came, who lived a perfect life. A strong man who came and humbled himself into the shape of a servant. And because of him, because of Jesus, there is not a single lost cause under the sound of my voice. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.